Hey, Nailers fans, it's DJ Abicello with another edition of The Toolbox. I hope everybody is staying safe and healthy, and I have some great entertainment for you today. In fact, our guest is so good that that is going to be the duration of the show. We're not going to have any news or notes, just the interview, so I hope you really enjoy this one. But before I dive into today's guest, I want to let you know that The Toolbox is now being brought to you by Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. Oh, the good old hockey game is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. Oh, the good old hockey game is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. I am very happy to bring in a special guest to the Toolbox. We've had a lot of outstanding players and coaches come through Wheeling in the 28-year history of the Thunderbirds and Nailers, but I don't think there is a player who has hit the popularity of this guy. It is one of our great two-time ECHL All-Stars and now of Spit and Chicklets fame, Paul Bissonette. Paul, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with me. I know you guys are still keeping on rolling with the show even through these difficult times. How are you hanging in there? I'm doing great. Thank you for the call. Uh, you know, I, we were talking about it before we started recording. The last time I saw you was when you brought me a few of the, the bobble fists from the, from the Wheeling Nailers. I was honored to be in a class with my good pal Moondog and get our own bobbleheads for the Wheeling Nailers. One of the things that you guys have been working really hard on at this point in time is, of course, the ECHL Player Relief Fund. Why was it so important for you to get that started, and how important is the ECHL to you, obviously, still keeping a very close spot in your heart? Well, I mean, in all honesty, I was I was on the couch one day, and, and I believe the ECHL was one of the first leagues to shut everything down. And, you know, and unfortunately with, you know, you know, maybe where they are, are as a league and, you know, without the TV uh, deals and all this, it was unfortunate that I found out the players weren't going to be paid. And, you know, the, the ECHL really stands out to me because I was fortunate enough to start my professional career there. And my personal experience was unbelievable playing in Wheeling. I mean, let's start with the Booster Club and how nice they were. They used to take money out of their own pocket and get us treats for the bus and, and to bring it even further sometimes when our bus would break down, we'd actually have to borrow the Booster bus in order to get to our games. That happened when we uh, we played in Johnstown one night. So just right away when I saw that, I just I was like, you know, maybe we can do something to help. So I started reaching out to people and, and seeing maybe what we could do. And we had all these interviews in the bank that we'd done live for Spit and Chicklets. And I said, why don't we get some sponsors involved in raise some money and, and help out with the ECHL player relief fund because I was fortunate when I was playing in the ECHL to be on an entry-level contract where if that were to happen back then I would have been taken care of but the, my teammates who were on ECHL deals who I mean at the time I remember guys after taxes were making about 200 maybe 250 dollars where they were just trying to follow their dream and you know some of those players end up getting to the NHL level and, and going on and, and creating a legacy for themselves so I just wanted these guys to not be out of potential maybe summer training money um you know some of these guys have families as well so you know it, it just meant something to me to give back to those guys because i played with those guys so um it was uh you know it, it, everything's been going well we of course got to thank the sponsors we had canai brands boikies budweiser and bud light step on board so far dion Phaneuf called me out of the blue when i posted about it dion Phaneuf threw ten thousand of his own money in uh some random fan uh called from aspen and threw in uh, ten thousand it's just the outpouring of support has been awesome and, and we're hoping that they, these players can retrieve you know every dime that they should have made and you know, just try to, you know, help out the hockey community. 
as someone who's been through all the levels, starting here with wheeling in the ECHL, going up to the American Hockey League and the NHL, we know that the NHL is in such a different world in its own right, just based on how everybody gets treated. But what do you take away from your time in the ECHL? And like you mentioned, with the boosters and how close it is, and just the lifestyles, too, of the players where the league and the teams have to provide the housing. It's not like in the AHL where they're yeah. out on their own. It's very, it seems very individualized. Yeah, and before I go on from that, I wanted to, there was a lot of people that helped make the ECHL player relief fund possible. Of course, Larry Landon with the Players Association, a bunch of the players themselves stepped up, and of course, the people behind the scenes at Barstool as well as my co-host. But going to your question about the ECHL and, and you know why it's so special is I didn't play college, and it, it kind of has that college atmosphere because you mentioned that the teams pay for the housing. And when I was in Wheeling, I want to say we were on Washington Avenue. Am I correct here? Is that a you are that correct? One of the main streets. Yep. By Je- Jesuit? What's the college? Wheeling Jesuit. Now it's Wheeling University, but it was Wheeling Jesuit. You're right on. Okay. So my brain is, is still doing me well here. Um, but we had three of four houses in a row that were filled with four or five guys in each house. And we would throw you know parties after our Saturday or Sunday game if it was the last game of the weekend. And it was just such a close-knit group. And we had so much fun. I mean, if we, we already touched on the boosters. I had the, the experience of having a player coach in Terry Virtue. So just all these funny, quirky stories that you you know you don't see at the NHL level because you know they're flying on private jets and stuff. I believe that playing down there made me appreciate eventually what I got at the NHL level, and and really, like I said before, I'm very grateful to have gotten that experience, and that's why the ECHL does mean so much to me. Were the players as close back then as they were now? I look at our team that went to the Kelly Cup Finals in 2016, and, and there was something to be said about the chemistry in the locker room. You were a contracted guy. Did you still interact with the ECHL contracted guys? Was it still a very tight-knit group? Oh, yeah. I mean, the only the only thing that sucked about when, when I was there is, is so many guys were getting called up because we had such a good team at the start. So unfortunately, by the time the end of the season rolled around, we just we didn't have the players. And I mean, the one year I didn't spend a, a heck of a lot of time there. I believe it was under 20 games. But you know, we had Ned Haver and Sean Collins, uh, you know, Curtis Patrick, and yeah, we had we had very very close groups, even to the point where we we made a, a funny YouTube video called MySpace Love Ship. I don't know if uh, all you Wheeling fans have seen that one. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah, absolutely, I have. Yeah, so we were just doing stuff off the ice. I mean, uh, Foster was another guy. I think he went to college and won a national championship at Denver. So, yeah, anytime I, I keep in touch with these guys through DM. And like I said, the, the time we had of living all together and, and me living through my college experience that I'd missed playing in the OHL just made it so much better. We mentioned earlier you were a two-time All-Star at this level, and you came into the ECHL playing defense, but as you started to make your way up the levels, your role started to change. You played some forward. How important was it for you to learn and be open-minded to playing different positions, playing different roles, and do you think that that ultimately helped you grow to the player that you ultimately came to be in the National Hockey League? Uh, my time in Wheeling um, as a player was, I was a little bitter. I had a chip on my shoulder because I wanted to get to the next level. And it was nothing against, like, you know, where I was playing or who I was with. It was just, you know, I, I wanted more as an individual. But the one thing I can remember, and once again, it draws back to the, my time in the ECHL and why I loved it so much, is Glenn Patrick. And he just, he kind of just let me go. He let me, that was the last time I played hockey where I was just out there truly enjoying myself, not worrying about, 
you know, making a mistake because I wouldn't see another shift. That was my top level, and, and I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. And Oh, my God, I can't believe I forgot to mention Andy Frank, who he was he was our, our all-star goaltender. Um, he was tremendous as well. So there's, uh, there's some names that keep popping up in my head throughout the course of this interview. You mentioned the video that you all did. Another story that I've heard about was when you brought a championship belt out on the ice for warm-ups. Why did that take place? What was the story? They had this pest on the Reading Royals that just, you know, he, he did his job perfectly. He got under my skin basically every game we'd played against each other. And I think he challenged me to a fight, but I wanted to play at that level. I was getting my 20 to 25 minutes of ice time every night. And I finally ended up caving in and I ended up pumping this guy in Reading. And then the next night we were in and I, I heard that he'd hurt his shoulder too so I wasn't sure but he was in the lineup so I told him we had a heavyweight championship belt for player of the game I told the trainer I said bring this on the bench I'm going to stretch with it at center ice because I've had enough of this guy and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to let their whole fucking team know pardon my French that if anybody wants a piece I'm ready to go again and and it goes back to me having that chip on the shoulder so I brought it stretched with it center ice the Reading Royals ended up submitting the the warm-up video and I ended up getting suspended a game and fined $100 and I couldn't play the next game until they got the cashier's truck that I had to send into the league. Glenn Patrick called the commissioner at the time and we were in his room and he tried to be like, this is ridiculous. Like we'll take the fine, but we got, we need him in the lineup for next game. And they wouldn't budge. And that just goes to show Glenn, Glenn Patrick having his, uh, his, his players back. And mind you, that was the young punk in me. Uh, you know, when I, I think it's funny that it happened at that young age and maybe when social media wasn't around. Uh, but uh, looking back, you know, it's maybe a little cringy. You mentioned some of the teammates that you had great relationships and still do in some of those moments. Are there any others that really stick out to you when you were here in Wheeling that was like, oh, man, I'll never forget this as long as I live? Well, I talked about the quirky things that we would do that were normal. I mean, we used to, uh, what was the, the golf course where they had the outdoor rink where sometimes the circus was in town, we'd have to practice at the outdoor rink. Wheeling Park? Oh, is it called Wheeling Park? I thought there was a golf course there. Maybe in my mind isn't uh, isn't so fresh, but uh, just the, like the outdoor rink, uh, the, the booster bus breaking down was definitely one of them. To me, the maybe my, my one complaint at the time, and I just couldn't believe it, was just the travel schedule. We would play in Trenton and bus there on Friday and it was you know so I think it was like five hours away then come back for a game at home on Saturday and then bus back to Trenton for a Sunday game and I it, it didn't make sense to me but that was the grind that I think made me appreciate getting to the top one of the people that I've heard you talk multiple times about on Spit and Chicklets is somebody who's still here working as hard as he always has and that's equipment manager Bill Higgins what can you tell oh, us yeah. about your time with Billy and why he made it so much fun to come to the rink every day? Well, I'll be honest. Billy's a little grumpy, but me and him got along great, and I was always taking care of the trainers as much as I could uh, just because I know how hard they work and you know how, much high, how high maintenance the players can be sometimes. One thing, and you can ask him about this, is I was always bad at I always forgot to write my name down on the board in order to have my skate sharpened. I just couldn't remember. So I would always have to go up to him like day of the game and be like, Billy, I know. And he'd be like, Biz. And he would get so mad at me. But I think I ended up leaving him a pair of skates one year, one of my older pair of skates. And uh, I think it made up for all my times forgetting to put my name on the board. But my funniest Billy Higgins moment was probably, I think I had to ask him to sharpen my skates in the midst of the game. 
but it just so happens that I think Andy Frank had been called up, so he had to act as backup. So this guy's the backup goaltender for the Wheeling Nailers, skating, sharpening skates between periods. So this guy, this guy did it all. He did that up until just about a few years ago, and now we really don't have to utilize him as much as we used to back in the day. I think there was another story where, and this just goes to show how much Billy looks out for the guys, and like you mentioned, the sharpening the skates, but weren't you able to get a really nice stick out of him too? Well, are you talking about my my 6Ks as opposed to 7Ks? I think that's the one. Oh, man, so... Listen, I understand there's a there's a business aspect to the league, but I'd ran out of seven K, Reebok seven K sticks, and they were just a lot better than the six Ks. And the six Ks were a little bit clunkier, you couldn't feel the puck as much. And even I noticed it big time for, for me having the cement hands that I do. So I had to go into the, the owner's office and be like, Hey, listen, like I made the all star game last year, like all I want you guys to spend is extra twenty, thirty bucks on sticks that I wanna use and that I'll play to that caliber with. So they ended up sending over six Ks with a seven K sticker on them, and I. <laughs> so like we had a good chuckle about that one, but as I said, I don't think Billy had anything to do with that. But uh, you know, he's uh, he's a good dude, and I guess if I had to take care of my high maintenance ass every day, I'd probably be grumpy as well. <laughs> Wheeling has always prided itself on being an area, a team where players go because they can make it to the next level. You did that. What was it like to make it to the National Hockey League? Do you remember your debut? How cool was that? Yeah, it was a, it was a weird one. It, was, it took place overseas in Sweden, and uh, it was very unique. Uh, I, I found out before we'd gone on the trip, and, and I got to call my parents after my, Michelle Terrian told me, hey, like, you're going you're gonna to play in the National Hockey League. And, and given the fact that there were issues with me in, in Pittsburgh, mostly me being a, a young punk, going from the ECHL and basically thinking I was buried and, and exiled from the, the organization, I ended up clawing my way back to the NHL. So it was very special. And the, the one thing that stood out to my first game was, was uh, Matt Sundin ended up dropping the ceremonial face-off. And it, it was just incredible to see the standing ovation he got because of the impact he has on, on the hockey world over there. And, I mean, he's, you know, he's hockey royalty. It felt like they, were, they stood up for 10 minutes and clapped. And, and it was just not for one second did I get like, okay, let's get this going. It was just like, holy, holy shit, look at the fucking respect they have for this guy. And it just shows that not only is a, an ambassador of the game on the ice, but off the ice as well. So that's the one thing that stood out to me. You mentioned that feeling of feeling buried, and sometimes that's tough, especially for the young guys who they think that they're going to be a regular in the AHL right away, and that path is going to be a real quick one. What did you do to keep yourself positive and keep fighting every day to keep that hope alive? Um, I, I just, I truly believe you just, you just have to keep working, and you know, unfortunately, it may not happen. But if you have that mentality of saying, oh, well, I probably won't get called up or, you know, it may never happen, it's probably not. And, you know, it even got to the point where in my career, like, I wanted to be a defenseman. I thought I was a good enough defenseman to make the National Hockey League. But with the organization and when I got called up to the American League and them putting me fourth line left wing, I think the writing was on the wall that, you know, there was, there was a bit of sacrifice there because I had to give up a position that I wanted to play for the rest of my life and that I had played for my life up until that point. And I just, I said, you know what, let's, let's give it a shot here and let's invest in trying to become a left winger. And it ended up panning out. So, um, you know, it's sometimes not being stubborn in your role will be a lot more beneficial to you than, than you believe. And that's just in that case, you often see it, I'm sure, where these kids are coming out of junior and most of the time they were all point getters, all skill guys, all playing that top six role. 
Whereas the smart guys who are unable to play to that world-class level in the top six at the NHL, or in the NHL, excuse me, those who are able to adapt and, and learn how to penalty kill and maybe adding a physical element to their game and becoming better at face-offs and more responsible along the walls, it's those types of things that will get you to the next level because being a top six and of that world-class talent in the NHL, I think that you have to not only be physically but God-gifted in, in all areas in order to be that. So just develop your game all around. We see all the videos today, too. They've done a tremendous job of really taking us behind the scenes, showing us the lifestyle. So we know that the NHL is fantastic with the travel and the accommodations. You're playing in big crowds. What's something that maybe your everyday fan doesn't see on those videos that makes playing in the NHL such an experience? Oh, man. Jeez, that's such a good question. I don't really know how to answer that. I mean... That, that isn't obvious. You kind of stumped me, and I think that might be the first time I've ever been stumped in an interview. I, I got the great, tough one in there. question, and I feel like it deserves a great answer. Um, I mean, like the first name that comes to mind, because of it, it was an experience, was it was uh, for me getting to play with Shane Doan. And, you know, there's, of course, a lot of great athletes on every team who, who are incredible leaders and just, like, good people all around. And I think just seeing how these, you know, world-class athletes are, are able to conduct themselves in a certain way, even through criticism and, and being put on a pedestal and, and just really everything that comes with being a professional athlete, it was just interesting to see. And, and it, was, it was cool to learn. And, you know, my father wasn't around during my, those years where I'm trying to grow as an individual and to have guys like that trying to guide me and, you know, get me away from some bad habits was fun. It was, it was, it was cool. And, and I always call those guys and thank them for everything I've, they've done for me. I mean, the Adriana Coins, the, the Shane Dones, the Derek Morrises. So it's just like there, there's so much pressure on these guys. And I think that sometimes people forget that. Reaching the NHL, big highlight. One of the things you were also able to accomplish in your career was you won a championship, a Calder Cup with the Manchester Monarchs. What was that experience like? Did you know that that team was going to be something special when it first came together, or was that something that developed as the year went along? They were special from the start of the year, and the reason why that whole part of my career meant so much to me was uh, I hadn't gotten an NHL contract after playing my five and a half seasons uh, in the NHL, last, of course, being with the Arizona Coyotes, and I, I just didn't have a contract, not even at the AHL level. So I sat on my couch for basically the first month of the season, and, and all of a sudden, what I'd done my whole life was taken from me, and fortunately, I was able to get a contract in the American League on a PTO with Arizona that ended up being in Portland it just didn't work out like it was it was just off and there was just no chemistry there and it was maybe a little weird and I ended up getting snipped probably about a month after being there and then uh, ended up reaching out to them and saying hey do you need a guy to protect the young guys and and they made a phone call to Dean Lombardi Dean Lombardi gave it the okay as long as I stayed the fuck off Twitter which is his exact words <laughs> and that was definitely a promise I was willing to keep at the time given my livelihood had been taken from me if that was the only uh, ask and uh, it, it, it was great man what a, a bunch of, of talented awesome guys I'll always look back on that group for helping me get, like, give me that experience of winning a championship at the pro level. And really, from my life being not so good and me not being so good about myself at the start of the year, from where I was by the end of it, it, it was a, you know, a, a credit to the effort that those guys had put in to give me that. Like, I didn't play a major role. I didn't have a point in playoffs, but what I did is I tried to protect them and, and make them feel as, as at ease as possible. 
You started playing your pro game at 20. So then being into your 30s, as you mentioned, protecting some of those younger guys, were there some moments where you looked at players and were like, oh my gosh, I'm looking myself in the mirror from 10 years ago. And what was that role like where players were looking up to you and asking for advice? Yeah, I would say that back in our day, things were a little crazier and these kids are a lot, I would say they're they're fairly mature for their age, but they just aren't into the same things. There's a lot of video games being played, um, not a lot of tail chasing and not a lot of as much alcohol anyway. There was a few guys, but it, it was it was just interesting to see the different dynamic of how professional the younger guys were compared to when I guess I jumped in and I, I mentioned earlier in the, in the interview like I was a bit of a young punk and I had a chip on my shoulder and I think I made a lot of mistakes and it was nice to see that these young guys weren't making as many and run, running a tighter ship. You mentioned Lombardi telling you to get off of Twitter, but there's only so much to keep biz away. So when you ended up deciding that your playing career was over, how easy was it for you to decide that you were going to do something involved in the media? Well, I, I always thought I, I would. I just wasn't ready at the time when my NHL career came to an end, and it was nice to kind of get away. And fortunately, it led to that Calder Cup and then a few other years in Ontario, California, with the LA Kings farm team. And just to, to talk about their organization as a whole, I had an unbelievable experience. I was very fortunate in my career to play for three separate organizations that treated me like gold, Arizona, Pittsburgh, and, and of course, Los Angeles. But uh, yeah, it, it ended up transitioning into media, and uh, I am very grateful. It's, it's something that I, I'm passionate about, which is hockey. And fortunately for the podcast, we, we do it our way, and, and we talk how you know we talk. So I guess the hardest part about it all is you know, you've met me. Like, I think we're, we're all normal, chill people. And we're not, we don't, we're not mean spirited. It's just maybe some of the negativity and backlash that comes with it and be, maybe being associated with the bar stool. My experience has not been one that sometimes other people try to perceive online, like as in from the outside looking in. And, you know, I just, that, that's what's difficult for me. I'm a sensitive guy. I don't want to hurt anyone. Sometimes maybe I'm a bit too reactive to that stuff, but uh, that would be my, be my only complaint transitioning to the media side of things. It's just, it's just hard, but, uh, but all in all, though, it, it has been a, a, a fairly positive experience. When you started to put the project together, did you know that Ryan Whitney was going to be the dream partner in this project? We talked about it on our PTO in St. Louis. About we, the original concept actually was I, I brought it to Keith Yandel's attention where I love the locker room. I loved being, I loved the, you know, like asking guys about stuff. And that was the team camaraderie. The hour and 15 minutes before practice started and, and even afterward was the best. And I wanted to recreate that concept of where guys would show up with their hockey gear into a locker room. We'd unzip it. There'd be beers in there. We'd pass them around and we'd just tell old stories. And he ended up sending a tweet out, I believe, like a year later saying, hey, I want to start a podcast, tag me, Colby Armstrong, and, and, you know, so who's with me? And RA reached out to him, and that's where it slowly began. So I just wanted to establish myself in my media career with the Arizona Coyotes first because I knew that once I stepped on the podcast, there's only one speed, and that's, you know, the way I handle things. And I knew that it would be somewhat polarizing so if, if if you know if i would always have the option to maybe fall back on a coyote's job so so far so good and i'm very grateful i hopped on and you know obviously i'm, I'm hungry for it and we'll see how long that lasts i love it when you have some of your former teammates on because that just leads to some of the stories that you know but how fun is it to talk to guys who maybe you didn't get a chance to play as teammates with or you're kind of learning them as you go in the interview 
Oh man, the, the podcast has led to some some amazing conversations. I mean, Tim Stapleton is a guy who comes to mind. Brendan Walsh. So these are these are the types of guys. Uh, two guys that Wit has introduced. The one thing I love about doing it is is interviewing the guys and, and showing the hockey world how many different unique personalities there are in the game. Um, we actually interviewed Curtis Patrick recently. That's going to come out soon. And even for the first time, finding out that I didn't realize his great grandfather's uh, or grandfather, excuse me, was had his hand in creating hockey. And that's something that he explains on the podcast. Which, as a teammate of mine, I didn't know. And, and Curtis Patrick didn't even play hockey, I believe, until the age of twelve. And he just, you know, he, I think he was a baseball player, and I think he was living in Virginia. So it was, it was just really interesting to hear his story, and uh, and of course learn more about a guy that I played with. So that's it's it's a joy, man. I love I love doing it, and that's that's what keeps me going. I know you've had a lot of outstanding guests on there, and I'm sure you don't get told no hardly at all. Is there anybody that's on your dream list that you would love to get a chance to interview, whether it be on television or on the podcast? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the list of the, the goats, so to speak. I mean, Brett Hall, I think, would, would be amazing if he was able to come on and open up. And Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux. But, but I, I think the problem is, is given how we talk and, you know, maybe some of the subjects we bring up, I don't think it, it would maybe benefit Mario Lemieux or Wayne Gretzky to come on where they probably will never. And, you know, it, I guess it's, it sucks for us, but I completely understand why they wouldn't. And, and nor do I have any ill will because if they don't hop on. So just because they had such an impact on the game. And I like to hear deeper dives into to situations where we, we grew up on. You know, there's, there's memorable moments where I would like to hear a 30-minute rant on what his emotions and feeling were going into it, what, what his state of mind was, maybe what his teammates' state of mind was. Maybe there was a situation in the locker room that made it turn all around. Like, we learned by having Mike Richards on that Scott Niedemeyer came in the locker room when Canada won the gold medal after they'd given up that lead, and he was like, boys, we're fine. Everyone chill out. We're good. And, you know, him have, have, having already played probably, you know, 20, 25 minutes, the ongoing joke with Niedemeyer is he was such a fluid skater, he would ha- only have two beads of sweat in the middle of his chest, and he would never sweat anywhere else. So he was getting the job done out there at a world-class level, and it was effortless. And he was always calm and collected, and he he kind of eased the tension in the room after giving up that lead. And Mike Richards and a lot of other guys seem to think that's what kind of helped them regather their thoughts and, and, and getting the job done. That's amazing. I absolutely love finding out those stories and seeing yeah, what ultimately cool. brings a team and has that success. It's unfortunate, though, because I mentioned a Canadian uh, <laughs> situation that with them winning. So maybe we, maybe we have to balance it off here for your American listeners. And maybe one of the U.S. women's gold medal team from a few years back. That'd be pretty cool. Oh, they, okay. Well, there you go. They seem to have been dominating the, the Canadian women now for, for a few years. So I was looking forward to the world championships in Halifax. And we were, we were planning on heading there to go watch the women's play, uh, the women play, excuse me. And oh, that is such a shame because I believe their game is growing and it's getting the attention it deserves given the, the all-star situation and, and just how they're handling it moving forward. Yeah, that was going to be one of those things that was definitely going to be very exciting to watch. There's so much, and I know everybody's just dying to get back to normal and get back to live hockey again. Yeah. We started by talking about the Relief Fund, and we'll finish up by talking about the Relief Fund too. I know that details haven't come out yet, but I'm thinking that fans are going to be very excited for one of the projects you're going to be working on, right? Yeah, I believe uh, 
I believe we're going to be releasing some merchandise coming up here shortly. We wanted to do a slow rollout. And like I said, ultimately the goal is, is just to, to raise some money for these players. And, and hopefully when this is all over, everything is able to get back to normal and no organizations get lost and those fan bases get to see the hockey that they want to see. So uh, look out for those shirts. Um, if anyone cares to donate, they can go to the ECHL website and, and donate for the, the COVID-19 relief fund. And uh, yeah, just thanks for having me on, man. This is this was fun. And, and best of luck to you and your career as well. Biz, I can't thank you enough. This has been outstanding. You do tremendous work. You represent our organization, our league, better than anybody ever could ask you for. So we're very grateful for everything that you do, and your success has been fantastic to watch. We absolutely love it, and having you as a former nailer. You guys, you guys are a massive part of that. I thank you guys for, for everything you've done for me. So uh, be well. And, and maybe uh, when the season gets back rolling again next year, uh, we can maybe come, come do a fun night and, and get all the old fans back together with the new school fans and, and get the people in the building. Absolutely. Let's do it. Huge thanks to former Naylor and former NHLer Paul Bissonette for joining me on this episode of The Toolbox. That was sensational. Make sure you're following Biz on all of his platforms on Twitter at BizNasty2.0. And make sure you tune in to all of his episodes on Spittin' Chicklets. Our next guest on the Toolbox will be 2016 Kelly Cup finalist and 2018 Wheeling Hockey Hall of Fame inductee Zach Torquato. That's going to be a fun trip down memory lane as we talk about his five years as a nailer as well as that magical run in 2016. Once again, I remind you that the Toolbox has been presented to you by Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. Continue to stay safe and healthy, and we'll talk to you next time on the Toolbox. 